Amen. Ooh. You got it? <laughs> Thank you, Blake. <laughs> That's true. You'd have, had, you'd have had Mike Brown after you if you'd have done that. Hey, good morning, Eastgate. Listen, uh, we are going to um, just jump into our study quickly this morning because there are a lot of things that I want to cover here, and I want to be respectful of your time. So uh, uh, we're going to continue in our study in, in the, the letter to the Ephesians. And if you've got a Bible, if you want to follow along this morning, if you'll find your way to Ephesians chapter 5, please. We've been going through the book of Ephesians, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We've been looking at it along the way, seeing what this letter is that was written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, all through this, uh, he's been laying out both a theological argument for the importance and the ramifications of the gospel. That is God invading this earth, heaven invading this earth, and how we've been invited into this process. We're, we're in the final parts of this letter, Paul's concluding thoughts, which really end up becoming a, a real challenge for us to, to live out the reality of this heaven invading earth uh, gospel that we've embraced. But it also becomes an epic challenge to the st social status quo of the ancient Roman world. Uh, and I mean, well, I mean, of the ancient Roman world, as well as our world or any other world where humans are ordering and arranging things. Last week was part one of a section that we're in here. If you weren't here when we went over that, I really encourage you to go back and listen to that. Uh, you can find it on YouTube or at our website, eastgatefellowship.net. It really lays the groundwork for what it is that we're going to be getting in here uh, today uh, and looking at. In, in verses 15 through 21 of chapter 5, which is what we looked at last week, Paul set up a series of contrasts to challenge how it is that we think about the world around us and encouraged us to, to seek out God's purpose for this life that we've been given. And he told us to live a wise life, not mindlessly accepting whatever social or cultural values that we're presented with, but to engage those things, trying to determine what God's intent is for life. And, and instead of being influenced by wine or other outside influences that deteriorate our ability to think and live well, he encouraged us instead to be filled by the Holy Spirit, which results in a life that then is shaped by scriptural values and how it is that we interact with each other and what it is that we do. So we left off with verse 21 last week, which we said was a hinge verse, if you were here. That means it was, it's a thematic connector between what he said in, in verses 15 to 21 and what he's about to say in verses 22 and following. Uh, so today we're going to pick back up in chapter 5, and we're going to be heading towards a, a section of Scripture that has become very controversial uh, over the years, and especially in our modern world, where Paul is going to get into some ways in which we express this new life but in the context of our families or how it is that we have our family relationships within the home. We're entering a territory that is well-worn. It's probably familiar to you if you've been around church um, for any length of time. And it's a section that I am suspecting we have superimposed our post-enlightenment Western worldview on. And as a result, I think it's highly likely that we have missed the larger point of what it is that Paul is trying to communicate in this section here. The reality is, verses 22 onward of this chapter, 
is a source of great debate. And, and there are very grounded and sincere Christians who view this from very different perspectives, who will interpret this very differently from each other. We need to be okay with that and realize there are differing ways in which we can look at these passages. What we want to do is be careful as we explore what it is that's being said here. We don't want to do damage to somebody else's convictions, but we want to get at what this text means, what Paul had in mind and what it means to us who are sitting here now as 21st century Americans who want to follow God's ways. Here's the thing. The passage that we're going to look at has been weaponized by some people, demonized by other people, and our goal is to do neither of those things. Our goal is to, as best as we're able, read what it is that Paul has written, take in the historic and the cultural context of when he wrote it, and then put it in the flow of what he's written so far so that we can get a better understanding of what it is that he's communicating to us in this, a, a, a better view of what the intended instruction is. So it's a big preamble, I know, uh, and if you're getting nervous, you should be. But if you're there in Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to begin by rereading verse 21. It's very important. So in verse 21, Paul said, and further, which was connecting it to, it's not in the original Greek, but it's the idea that's connected to his former thoughts about having our life shaped by the Holy Spirit. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And if you recall this verse, you know, is, is talking, as I said, about, about a spirit-guided life. And we took a close look at that word submit last week, which that word in the Greek is hupotasso, which, which means literally to, to set or arrange something under something else. Now, Paul applies it to people. So he's saying, arrange ourselves under the others in our lives. And the word submit in the English, it only means one thing. I mean, as we look at it, it means to obey someone who has authority or power uh, over us. And hupotasso in the Greek can mean that, but it's not a primary meaning for it. And it means other things as well. And in this context, it is far more likely that Paul has its other meaning in view, to think of ourselves as arranged lower than others, much like he said in, in Philippians 2. Did I put that one? Yeah, in Philippians 2, where he, he encouraged us to think of others as better than ourselves. That's the, it mirrors a thought that Paul has already said before. So I saw it as a call to embrace an intentional humility in how we treat others. And we pointed out how that was a radical idea being expressed within the Roman cultural system at that time, where status and social rank was everything. An entire life could be spent trying to move along those social lines. For Paul to suddenly say, put yourself in a position where you're arranged lower than your neighbor, well, that was huge. That was like massively disruptive to the social ranking order. And so it's very important, I believe, that we keep verse 21 as a thematic header for everything we're going to be reading after that. And that's something we don't do very often at all when we come to this passage of Scripture. And there's a reason why we don't do it. Because in many translations, and listen, I don't want to undermine anybody's trust or confidence in an English translation of the Bible. They're all good, right? Uh, some are better than others, but they're all good. They're all going to lead you to Christ. They're all going to lead us to an understanding of, of God's intent. 
But the people that make up the committees who, who wrangle these ancient texts into English will often come with their own views, their own biases already in place as they're, as they're translating these things. We pointed that out many times in reading out of the NLT, which is what I've been using here, that oftentimes we see there's an interpretive bent that has been imply, you know, implied in the way that they're translating the, the text. So here's the thing, in many translations, over half of them, as I looked at it, the translators put a break between verses 21 and 22. Uh, and it's hard to see from up there, but you'll notice that in so many of these translations, there's a break that they put there. Now, we have to remember the chapters and the verses are not part of the original Greek manuscripts. Those came with the English translations so that we could better organize the content of it. But in the original language, there's no breaks. There's no punctuation. There's, I mean, it is just all big blocks of words. And so all the punctuation that we, we get to from the English is inferred in that. So that means the translators have to decide if there should be a comma here, or if there should be a period that ends the sentence, or if there should be a break for a paragraph. That's, that's how it is that we have such disparity among all the English translations. And that's why some translations have a break between verses 21 and 22, because the translators believe Paul was beginning a new differentiated thought from submit to one another to, to the next verse that he's going to say. Others, like the NLT, which I'm using, NLT, is, it puts verses 15, five, you know, chapter, I mean, chapter 5, verse 15, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, as one uh, singular thought. And of course, you could say, well, who's right in this? And I am no Greek scholar, okay? Make, I might need to make that point. But in reading those who are Greek scholars, there's a very compelling argument uh, th there, that verse 22 does not make sense outside of verse 21. And the reason for that is there is no verb in verse 22. Well, what's verse 22 say? Well, let's read it. In, in English, it says, for wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. In the Greek, it simply says, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Well, wives what to your husbands? Well, the translators can only look to the previous verse to provide context for the answer. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So they rightly insert the verb submit, but the infutable logic to me then is that verse 21 is the thematic header for this section. That's why Paul didn't need to include the verb. The verb is up there in verse 21. Submit to one another in reverence to the Lord's. Wives, you do it this way. Husbands, you'll do it this way. It all flows from verse 21. I know this is technical. I may have lost you already, okay? But it's important for me that you see the steps that we have to take to get to a place where we can understand what it is that Paul is communicating here, what he's trying to say. We've already pointed out that submit, hupotasso, is not likely talking about obeying an authority figure, but it's talking about uh, an attitude of humility that will put others first in the way that we interact with them. And if that's the header, then what Paul is presenting in the following verses is an epic subversion of the Roman social order and household code. 
What are you talking about? Okay, so, so I'm preparing the soil here, all right? I, I, I'm, I'm going to, to plant what may be a very inter- a different interpretation uh, of Paul's words here in the following verses. And please remember, I am not telling you how to interpret it. I'm telling you how I interpret it, and you then have to take that to the Holy Spirit and allow him to guide you and lead you as to, you know, you, we each all need to pray about this. I'm doing what any teacher will do, and that is give you my best take on what it is that's being said here. And the rest is between you and the Holy Spirit, how it is that you're going to... So if you disagree with my conclusions, that is cool. I am not the arbiter of truth. Only God is that. So I mean, I take comfort. I'm not the arbiter of truth, and neither are you. So we're all dependent. We're all dependent on, on God's leading and guidance in this. So, okay, let's read this. And I'm going to read this all as one big section. I want to keep it all together the way it was intended to be. So we're going to read all the way down to chapter 6, verse 9, uh, and, and put it all together. So he says, And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she'll be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we're members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a very great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you'll have a long life on the earth. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger by the way that you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. There's a differentiation he's making there. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them in sincerity as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all of your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each of us for the good work we do, whether we're slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. All right, this section is loaded with all sorts of stuff that we've got to untangle and wrestle with in our modern world. Uh, This is not a passage of scripture, a section of scripture that we should ever read flippantly, especially in public. I want you to know, I recognize the minefield that I'm walking through here, but 
it's also really important that we not just disengage from this or dismiss it. Let's look at it and, and see what it is that it's saying. Let me just tell you right off the bat that for most of my Christian life, I was told and, and I believed and even formerly taught that what Paul was describing here in the first part of this through chapter five uh, and a little bit into chapter six was what we called the divine order for the home. Uh, according to this view, Paul was receiving from heaven the proper hierarchy for families and the workplace, the divine order for authority. And that divinely appointed hierarchy was presented as a patriarchy. The husband, father, who is a spiritual head of the home to whom the wives and the children all submit. Uh, and it was always qualified, I would say, in my hearing of it, uh, that, you know, that fathers and husbands have to be good spiritual leaders that families can submit to. I never heard it presented as a carte blanche uh, authority. Still, we got to be honest about this. And I have to be honest about my experiences with this. I witnessed over the years a lot of questionable behavior and even outright abuse uh, that was filed under the husband as the authority and the wife must submit. And for many years, I never questioned this order of things. I, I believed God dropped this structure down from heaven and we were supposed to conform to it. Any bad fruit that we may have witnessed in people's lives was because they weren't doing it right. Or, you know, we just needed to get better at God's order of, of things. But something changed for me, and it had to do with my insatiable intrigue with Roman history. And I know that seems kind of like out of left field, but, you know, I admit it's, it is odd, but that's what happened with me. I spent a lot of time learning and studying the Greco-Roman world, and, you know, because it just fascinates me. I admit it, I'm a geek. It's just the way it is. But the more I learned... The more I learned about that world, the more something started to bother me. And it was a simple question, really. And it was, why is God's divine order for the family an exact mirror of the Greco-Roman household code? Why is it that what it is that Paul presents there is laid out exactly the way the ancient Romans would have laid that out? And I could only come up with a few answers on that. Either the Romans put something together that God really liked and he put his stamp of approval on it or the Romans maybe stumbled upon God's intended hierarchy and God was pleased to reinforce it in the scriptures or maybe Paul was doing something entirely different in this passage from my previous suppositions something that I hadn't considered before and so that's what I began to explore I began looking at this from that perspective now if I haven't put you to sleep yet, you should be wondering, what is the ancient household code from the Greco-Roman world, Rob? What is the household code? It's actually a very well-known tradition from the ancient Roman world where a patriarch would be informed of his duties as a husband and a father and a master and his responsibility to set up his household in a way that, that mirrored the, the Roman Empire in a way that's going to actually reinforce the, the structures of the Roman Empire. 
And it was a triad relationship. This is the way it was presented in ancient Rome. A triad relationship that looked like this. The husband, who was also the father and also the master, rules over his wife and his children and his slaves. Aristotle had a very famous, uh, well-known discourse in his tome on politics. And here's what he wrote. The first and fewest possible parts of a family are master and slave, husband and wife, father and children. A husband and father rules over the wife and children, both free, but the rule differs. The rule over his children being royal and the rule over his wife based on natural constitution. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female, just as the elder and full grown is superior to the younger and more immature. I didn't write this. <laughs> Don't get upset with me. This was Aristotle, the pagan Aristotle. So this is just how the ancients viewed the world, they, especially the ancient Greeks and Romans. This is the household code that was taught from generation to generation. And it was always exclusively taught to the men of a household. It was only addressed to the men because, as we read there, the women were not qualified for rule, nor were the children, uh, since by nature they were considered to be inferior. My point in bringing this up is, do you see the parallels? I mean, did you, did you look at them? Did you see the order in which they go down there? The parallels between what it is that Paul is describing and what it is that Aristotle was describing? It's an exact mirror of the ancient Roman household code, except where it isn't. And where it isn't is dynamite. Where it isn't is, is huge in terms of the import of understanding what it is that Paul is trying to say here. You know, like we said, the, 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 the male in the household was the only one who would receive this instruction. But right off the bat, in verse 22, who is Paul addressing? The women. The women. The wives. <laughs> According to Aristotle, they were inferior. Nobody, and I'm not making this up, Nobody in the ancient world ever had the audacity to address women, especially wives, directly as equals. The same applies to children, whom Paul addresses directly as though they're equals. The same applies to slaves. He speaks to them as equals and even finished his discourse in chapter 6, verse 9, with a statement of equality of humanity before Christ. Christ has no favorites. No one is elevated or inferior before him. Masters are not elevated above the ones that they enslave. And that even brings up a more basic question. If this is God's divine order dropped from heaven, then why is slavery included in it? Now, we moderns try to sanitize it and say, well, you know, the parallel is between employers and employees, but that is not what Paul had in view here. In, in fact, the way he addresses it, he is undermining the very concept, the ideologies of slavery as an institution by declaring human equality before God. So right out of the gates, we're confronted with something that seems familiar on the surface, but that completely reshapes the foundation and intent of the structure that's presented. I personally don't believe Paul was describing God's divine order for the home. I believe Paul is using a known cultural structure 
to introduce the gospel's epic subversion of the Greco-Roman household code as well as its power structures. But then the question comes up, well, you know, if that's true, Rob, if what you're saying is there is true, then why did he do it like this? Why would he even employ that? If he's not reinforcing the household code, why didn't he just come out and say, God doesn't order things like the Romans do. Uh, God intended something different for our relationship. Why wouldn't he just say that? It's a good question. Even more than that, one of the most common criticisms leveled against scripture is about slavery. Why didn't Paul and other New Testament writers speak out against slavery outrightly? Why do New Testament scriptures at times, like the one we just read, even seem to encourage enslaved people to accept their situation? I mean, granted, Paul undermines the ideology behind the practice of slavery by declaring equality before God. But why not condemn the practice outrightly? Why not just come out and say, hey, this is wrong. And the lack of condemnation from the New Testament scriptures is what gave fuel to antebellum slave owners in our nation's history to claim a scriptural right to that evil practice. So to me, those are not unreasonable questions. Why, why does it do this? Why do the scriptures deal with this this way? I truly believe that it is of utmost importance to keep the historic context in view when we're reading these ancient texts. You know, it's so easy for us in the relative comfort of our modern Western world to be offended by what we see as a failure to address inhumane practices uh, in the writings that we have here. But we have to remember, Paul was not writing in our present context, and I believe it would be written quite differently if it were. There's always a certain amount of cultural relativity that's present in the, in the writings of the New Testament. And that is, the, the instructions are written in such a way that they are relative to the society and culture of the time. The truths that the scriptures are presenting are timeless. The cultural context is not. It changes a lot. Paul, Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 11 on women wearing head coverings, that's a prime example of that, a custom that is long forgotten to us. We don't even know exactly how it would apply to anything. In the ancient Roman world in which Paul was writing, the household code was considered the glue that held the empire together. In, in the writing that we quoted from Aristotle earlier, he makes it clear that the Roman Empire is made up of households, and the household is a microcosm of the Roman Empire. So a threat, then, to the household code would be viewed as a threat to whom? To Caesar, to Rome. That's right, to the Roman Empire. If we were to get around that a Jewish preacher was instructing small communities within the empire to adopt something different than the household code, if he were declaring outrightly that slaves should be freed, that would be seen as a clear threat to the empire. And what did Rome do to anyone who posed a threat to their power structure? That's what crosses were for, right? They got a whole warehouse full of them just for you if you want to threaten the empire. And that's, I mean, it's no joke because it's estimated that over 50% of the population of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. Wrap your mind around that. So the only way 
that the elite few at the top could maintain their fragile thread of control was to enforce that control quickly and violently. In the third and final servile war in the Roman Empire, 6,000 people were crucified on the Appian Way, put out on the roadway, because of a slave rebellion. Paul and the other New Testament writers worded things the way they did so that the churches that they were writing to would not end up on crosses themselves. At the same time, it's clear that the New Testament authors were subverting those inhumane norms and introducing new concepts of of divinely intended dignity and equality for all people before God. And we were meant to put it together. The writings of the New Testament, they're not from the French Revolution. They're not part of a political move towards equality. Nothing wrong with those, but that's not what the Bible was doing. The Bible was subverting the codes and the orders that were already there, representing something new to us. And we were meant to put it together, what this is supposed to to mean. If we are equal before God, there is no place for inequality in our own social orders. There's no place for grasping for power over another human being. God forbid claiming ownership over an equal. Whether it's in the home or the church or the larger society in which we find ourselves, the Christian ideal always points to dignity and equality for humanity. One of the things that comes across in the New Testament is that God isn't interested in hierarchies of any kind. And I believe that includes patriarchy. Instead, we are all called to do what I believe Paul is describing here in this text. We're all called to serve each other in humility, to see ourselves as equals before Christ, to take up our calling to be part of the service industry, not taking power or control over our fellow human being. In fact, Paul does an amazing thing in this passage where he uses the language of the household code, but he dismantles the power structure sort of from the inside out. He rearranges the whole order. And if you read it properly, you'll see it. You'll not be able to unsee it if you you look at it from that perspective. As Dr. Tim Mackey puts it, Paul is not affirming our cultures but he's also not scrapping everything. He's trying to fashion something brand new. And that something brand new is what I believe we were meant to grasp a hold of in this text. If Paul isn't reinforcing a patriarchal household rule, what is he doing then? What is he saying in this text? How do we understand his instructions in this passage? Well, that's something we're going to need to take some time to unpack and examine. And in case you're looking at the time and getting worried, we won't be doing that today. <laughs> Last week, I thought it was gonna, I would be able to break this whole thing down into two teachings, and I was wrong. I'm going to need three to get through this. So next week, we're going to go back into this passage, and we're going to look at what Paul's instructions are and, and look at the subtle yet profound changes he makes in that, which completely blow up the power structures that are in place. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating, it's, it gives you respect for Paul's way of thinking like 
nothing else that I've ever encountered. He was a, a fascinating human being to be able to word things the way he did and, and lead us to conclusions the way he does. Uh, hopefully, we'll be enlightened with a deeper understanding of God's intent for us in our relationships. What I believe is, is going on in this passage is a challenge to us to examine the power structures that are in place in our world, in our homes, in our workplaces, and consider this new ethic of God's kingdom. What new ethic? The hupotasso ethic of humble service to our fellow person. Because if we recall, when Jesus declares himself as Messiah, what does he say? The Son of Man did not come to be served, okay, I'll say it for you, be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If he is the one whose name we claim, we are Christians, his is the example we will follow. And that example did not set up power structures to rule over people. That example came and washed the feet of the ones that would normally be the ones serving him. Hupotasso, the humble service to our fellow person. So let's remind ourselves of God's intent for humanity, that of dignity and equality among all the human beings that he made. And let's set our hearts to discovering how we can put into practice these principles of service and love and how that, that, may impact our world in a far greater way than some revolt or rebellion, but rather the amazing subversion of God's divine love represented in this busted, broken-up world. Right on? Okay, cool. I'm glad to hear that response. If you'll stand with me, please. Father, we just thank you for your word. And Lord, it's challenging to us. And we know if we come to your word and we're comfortable when we leave, we've read it wrong. So we thank you, Lord, that we have a level of discomfort here. We read things that are foreign to us in our present context and maybe foreign to us even in our religious context. We're, we're not exactly sure what to make of these things, but we thank you that you've provided us with your spirit. And so I ask you, Lord, to guide us and lead us, lead every person here by the spirit of God that dwells within us. Guide us and lead us and shape our lives, our homes, our thoughts, and our interactions with each other accordingly. Help us to represent the values of your kingdom in the way we conduct ourselves. I pray this for us, Father.